You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Feinstein's 54 Below. Please welcome to the podcast, Tony Award winner, Andre DeShields. Welcome to the Feinstein's 54 Below podcast, where we bring you behind the scenes at Broadway's Supper Club. I'm Nella Vera, the Director of Marketing, and I'm beyond excited about today's episode. Our guest today is a theatrical legend whose illustrious career spans more than 50 years, beginning with roles in the original landmark productions of Hair and The Wiz, where he played the title role, to his Tony-nominated performance in The Full Monty, to his Tony win in 2019 for his role as the messenger to the gods, Hermes, in Hadestown. Andre DeShields has distinguished himself not only as a show-stopping actor, but also as a director and educator. This past summer, this titan of the theater took on perhaps the greatest role written for an actor when he played King Lear for the St. Louis Shakespeare Festival. And on August 3rd, he opens a solo show right here at Feinstein's 54 Below. Andre DeShields, welcome to the Feinstein's 54 Below podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be your guest today on this very fine Sunday. It's an incredible honor to meet you. And I want to thank you for taking the time to record this podcast, which I know will mean a lot to your fans and to our 54 Below audience. It means a lot to me. What you don't know is that we've actually met before very, very briefly. Robert O'Hara, the Tony-nominated director of Slave Play, and I went to grad school together. And I was in the management program, and he was in the directing program, and we did our thesis together. And Robert had a party one night for all of us in the grad program, and it was just a bunch of students and cheap beer, but you were there. (laughs) And of course, we were all a little giddy when we saw you, and Robert being Robert, in his very casual tone, at one point said to me, oh, Nella, this is Andre, as though we weren't already aware that there was theater royalty. (laughs) So I just want to ask you, how did you meet Robert? Do you even remember? I do. Obviously, we were all here in Manhattan, and Robert was, I think I am expressing this correctly, a protege of George C. Wolfe when George was the producing artistic director at the Public Theater. And Robert had just introduced his production of Insurrection. Yes, that was my thesis. (laughs) Okay, okay. And just as he introduced us casually, as if we should know one another, that's how I got introduced to Robert. We bonded rather quickly because I think we were both coming from a similar cultural point of view. He is an idiosyncratic artist, his point of view, his approach to his artistry, as I am. And I think we recognized that brotherhood in one another and both started looking for an opportunity to collaborate which now didn't happen until 2017 with Mankind. Oh, wow. Yes, Over the years, we got to know one another. But the time that we were actually able to collaborate and bump intellects and really create in the crucible experimental but commercial theater 
was Mankind. Mankind. Was that the play with the golden babies? You know it was. I, I, I love it. I tried to get that gigantic baby. You know, they, right, had, right. they had it uh, on, on Craigslist. They said, if you want this gigantic golden baby, apply. And uh, my boyfriend and I applied, even though we would have nowhere to put this gigantic. Do you know who bought it? <laughs> no, I don't know. who. I saw Stephen the baby. Colbert. What? Stephen Colbert. Really? Yep. Now, what oh he's doing gosh. with it, don't ask me. I don't know. <laughs> I can't believe that he took Crybaby home. That's crazy. This is so interesting to me. My boyfriend knows Stephen Colbert very well. Find out what Colbert did with that baby. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. That is an amazing story. You've been really prolific during the pandemic. In-person shows at Zoom Theater, King Lear, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Was that a conscious choice? I know many people, including many artists, decided to take a step back, but you chose to keep working to keep Yes, busy. that was definitely a conscious choice. Let me preface the story I'm about to tell. With the day, the production stage manager at the Walter Kerr Theater said to us that... Broadway was shutting down, but just take a few personal pertinent items from your dressing room. We'll be back. That was March 12th. We'll be back on April 14th. And I said, jokingly, what, April 14th, 2021? <laughs> <laughs> Little did you know. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we all had a giggle. And then April 14th became one of the most fluid dates in history. It was then May 15th, and it was June 7th, then it was right after the 4th of July, then it was Labor Day of 2020. And well, you know the story. Here we yeah. are in August of 2021, and we are just realizing the plans to restore Broadway. Now, when Broadway shut down, I took a moment to seriously recognize what my life had been in 2019. 50 years of sowing my artistic seeds finally paid off on June 9th, 2019, when I received the Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Musical. And I had that opportunity to drop my wisdom bomb on how many millions of people were watching the Tony Awards. Yes. Now, having had that opportunity for that abundant harvest, the Tony Award, the Drama Desk, the Grammy, etc., I started thinking then that the wise thing to do after you have harvested so abundantly is to allow the field to lay fallow because it needs to regenerate itself. All the time I'm thinking, why now, when things are so verdant, does the pandemic come? I immediately connected it with the wish that many of us use when we think about the ups and downs of our industry, and that is, if only the playing field were level. The idea being, if only the playing field were level, 
everyone would be able to share in this abundance. Well, if nothing else, the pandemic served to level the playing field in the sense that nobody knew anything and everybody knew nothing. But what did we do? We reacted in fear. We acted in panic. We withdrew. We claimed for our personal selves stress, frustration, life conundrums that were translated into, it's an overused term now, both by regular citizens, but particularly by politicians, existential crisis. As if we, like the natural world, were supposed to retreat into a cave and fatten ourselves, and six months later we could come out and start our lives again. And it's demonstrated in other events in our lives. Take the West Coast and its series of devastating fires. Once the fires are under control, the residents say, oh, we're going to rebuild. Let's take, for an example, the rising water levels. Once the devastating flood, if you will, flash floods or whatever you want to call them, withdraw, retreat, we build again on that same territory that had just been flooded. So that is not what we were supposed to learn from the pandemic. We are supposed to learn that when the playing field is leveled, we're supposed to give it a chance to rest, give it a chance to revivify itself, give it a chance to grow green again and blossom. Now, that sounds very poetic, and it is poetic, but the lesson we're supposed to learn from that is to do the same thing with our lives. The pandemic was an opportunity to rejuvenate ourselves, to revivify ourselves, to do those things with our intellect, with our emotions, with our spirit, with our physiology that we have been kept from doing for so long because we're always busy with the everyday doldrums of getting through those 24 hours that make up the drudgery of an ordinary day. So I actively decided that I was going to use this opportunity to make use of the greatest tool that an artist has in his toolbox. And that is to use the power of my art to transform where I could individual lives, to alter where I could what I saw what was miscreant in our government, to be when I could the change that I want to be in the culture, in the global society. Now, what I'm saying is I translated that often used phrase, carpe diem, seize the day. So I substituted another Latin word for diem, for day. I substituted the word donum, which means gift. So I started seizing the gift, the gift of the opportunity to do those things that we have to put on a long list of things I want to do because I'm so busy doing the things I have to do. So as an artist, we take the same Hippocratic oath that healers do, which is first do no harm. But it doesn't mean don't challenge. It doesn't mean don't change. It doesn't mean avoid difficult situations. 
The pandemic is definitely a difficult situation. But if you avoid it, it grows on the horizon until it seems insurmountable. And then you give up. But when the problem seems insurmountable, that's when we have to know that we are David and the problem is Goliath. And if we take the right tool, if we take the right ammunition, we can do away with that problem and continue to coordinate, communicate, collaborate, because here's the opportunity to do exactly that. So when you make that effort, the gift, as it were, the opportunities arise. Absolutely. And some people were not able to grab those opportunities and other people dug in and were able to use that time when they couldn't be doing other things. Exactly. Um, But it's also, I think, what you said about if you don't approach it or acknowledge it, it's like trauma. If you don't deal with trauma, it just keeps building and building. Until you are overcome by it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. So because of that approach, I was able to remain gainfully employed through the pandemic. Because I wasn't so much thinking about myself as I was thinking about someone else. And that, as corny as it sounds, but that is one of the many lessons of the pandemic, that we have to approach our relationships from, well, look, I'm an unreconstructed hippie. My formative years were the summers of love. 1967, 1968, 1969. I come from a theatrical culture that emphasized, that highlighted experimentalism and experientialism, which not many people embrace these days, which is theater, artistry, isn't only taught in textbooks isn't only taught in studios, isn't only taught in master classes, isn't only taught in the relationship between a mentor and a mentee. The best way to hone your art is to experience as much of humanity as you can. And that's where you learn life lessons. Because the reason that people have missed theater so much The reason that people are now celebrating what we hope is indeed the return of theater is because when the pandemic happened, it disappeared one of the two places where we go for our ritual, the church or temple and the theater. There were only two environments where people, where strangers go and sit next to one another for the same reason, community, communion, to have questions answered, to have problems solved, crises resolved, to have burdens lifted, to have yokes broken. Sure, empathy. Yeah. Now, audiences aren't going to articulate it that way, but if you don't deliver that, they'll let you know you have not done your job correctly. Audiences will not lie to you. If you satisfy the reasons that they have come to the theater, they'll give you that ovation, whether it's standing or not, they will recognize fully your service. I want to ask you about King Lear. 
because I was very excited when it was announced that they would be streaming this production that you were just in. And I was able to watch it. I want to ask you, you've done the show twice now. What draws you to this play and this part? Well, you know that King Lear in terms of dramatic literature is the Mount Everest. Yep. <laughs> you may also know that in my Tony acceptance speech, my cardinal rule number three was the top of one mountain is the bottom of the next. So keep climbing. The first time I essayed the titular role in King Lear was 2006. I could not have gotten to the top of Mount Everest the first time. So I made a covenant with myself that in approximately 10 years, I was 60 years old in 2006. So I said, oh, in another 10 years, I want to essay this character again. Well, it's been another, it's been 15 <laughs> years. So now at age 75, I get a second chance to ascend Everest. The first time I was able to concentrate on what most scholarship says this play is about, a powerful king who descends into the depths of dementia. This second time around, I concentrated on the empathy that is the result of the king's descent into dementia, because that's what the pandemic required. Well, I was so struck by the vitality and energy of the production. Everything about it, the color palette, the music, the pacing was so dynamic and very different than other King Lears I've ever seen. Yes. And what you just said about the empathy, that moment that he has with Cordelia. Cordelia. Where he says, are you my child? And those lines right before that, where I thought this is the most lucid and reasonable that this king has been in the whole play, right in that moment. It was wonderful, yeah. Yeah. So I've grown as an artist, as an actor over these 15 years. So if I approach the character empathically, then that should make it available to the audience to also recognize that in this madness, there is also the seed of redemption which again is another lesson from the yeah. pandemic because we treat each other so roughly, even when we love, it's a vigorous kind of love. Yeah. Everyone avoids the gentle. Yeah, I saw something for the first time and I think I've seen this play maybe 15 times at least. And this is the first time that I noticed this and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but what happens with Cordelia is always a mystery in most Lears. All of a sudden, there's his favorite child and he turns on her. And it's either madness or he's proud or he's angry. And it, the audience doesn't always have satisfaction with that moment. Right. And when I saw your Lear, this was the first time when I saw that he was having a public ceremony to show the plan for succession to tell the kingdom they had nothing to worry about, that it was going to be a peaceful transfer of power, that no wars were going to happen because this is what he was doing, is splitting the kingdom publicly. And then she, in many ways, kind of spoils it because she doesn't play into the public ceremony. 
And for the first time in 15 years, I saw that she humiliates him in front of the court. And perhaps that was a trigger. And I had never seen that ever in a production. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And that was deliberate. I mean, in terms of that's what I was discovering the second time through. As much as the king loves Cordelia, she is the disruptor. Yes. In the peaceful transfer of power. I'm glad you put it in those very contemporary settings because that is why we move the period to Afrofuturism mm-hmm. so that audiences could apply to it what was being revealed to them in real time. Cordelia is a lovely teller of truth, but people who speak the truth are disruptors. Yes. And I had always just seen his anger and his feeling of betrayal that came out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, this scene made so much sense to me. It's like, well, why don't you just play along with this so that the kingdom can have peace? Yes. (laughs) And in a private moment, you can say to your dad. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I loved it. So it was really wonderful. So what a triumph it was. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And how wonderful to perform it outdoors like that. I've seen you in outdoor theater before because I saw you in the Bacchae years ago also at Shakespeare in the Park. But again, again, another perfect outcome of the pandemic. It's been ages since I have spent every day for two months, out of doors, all day. That's what children do. That's why they're so happy, because they're out in the sun, they're out in the air, they're out with the trees, they're out with nature, and nature embraces them and calms them and allows them to be who they are, animated, happy, rambunctious, boisterous. So the two months I spent in... St. Louis at the Shakespeare Festival, every day, eight-hour rehearsal days, 12-hour tech days, we were out of doors. If it rained, it rained. If it got cold, (laughs) we got cold. If it was 102 degrees in the sun, it was 102 degrees in the sun. Yeah, I think many of us experienced that because we've been cooped up and the only thing you could do was go for walks or go to the park. I think my dog was walked more than he's ever been walked in this during the past right, year. Exactly. Because you just need to get out. And that has been a gift, actually, to be able to spend so much time. For me, I live on the Upper West Side in Central Park. There are parts of the park that I never knew were there. And now I do because that's all I could do. <laughs> and the pandemic made that possible. Yeah, yeah. I remember leaving my apartment and walking down the middle of the street. Because there was no traffic. I remember that. And saying to myself, I haven't bumped in. I mean, literally, I haven't bumped into anyone for blocks. (laughs) That's because there are no crowds on the street. Oh, my dear. I can, I mean, I've seen the birds, but I've never heard them because it's such a din of noise. I can hear the birds. Elevate your summer with Osea's best-selling body care set. It's everything you need for radiant summer skin on the go. Featuring travel sizes of Osea's clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral skincare, like their best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. 
Right now, you can get the Best Sellers Body Care Set, a $78 value, 33% off. And use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com code SUMMER. Let's talk about your career, which 50 years, absolutely spectacular. When did you know you wanted to be an actor and how did you begin on this path? And was your family supportive early on? I go back to the admonition, which I have adjusted for my personal life. Carpe donum, seize the gift. This was a gift to me the day I was evicted from my mother's womb. Because when I was old enough to have an adult conversation with my parents, my mother volunteered that her life's dream was to be a chorus girl. And that was her choice of words, chorus girl. She was born at the turn of the 20th century. Her parents, my maternal grandparents, said to her, no decent colored child of ours is going to shuffle her way through life. We barely shuffled our way off the plantation. Similarly, with my father, who wanted to be a singer and who had a lovely tenor voice, his parents, my paternal grandparents, said to him, how are you going to be a responsible husband? How are you going to take care of your children with such an insecure profession as a singer? Now, what I'm saying is both of my parents deferred their life dreams. There are 11 children in my family. Somewhere along that line of 11 children, those X and Y chromosomes of deferred dreams had to make themselves manifest. I happened to be lucky child number nine. So for my first conscious thoughts, my focus was on entertainment. As a child, I could not have explained it. Now I can explain it. Because when I was conceived, the dream that my mother had deferred to be a dancer, the dream that my father had deferred to be a singer, co-mingled and conceived the manifestation of those deferred dreams. So I never for a second, was confused about what I should be doing. And when I do masterclasses now, I encourage young people to surrender to their destinies. Eventually, your destiny will rise up from the path that you are walking and say, hi, I've been waiting for you. Here I am. I love that. And even those of us who don't have that kind of talent, I feel we all have that kind of destiny. Yes. I'm in marketing. And I remember when I realized that I was put on this earth to bring more people to the theater. That for me is the greatest joy and why I'm in marketing and never wanted to leave marketing. Even though when you go to grad school, as Robert and I did at Columbia, they try to make you into a managing director and executive director. And for me, it was always, I just want to bring people to the theater because I want people to experience what I experience when I sit yes. in the theater and watch yeah. theater. And when I came to that realization, I also felt that my life just kind of... Yeah, was, I understand what you... Um, I wouldn't say fall, but I understand what you're saying. So it happens for those of us who are laymen also. <laughs> yes. But your time in college wasn't wasted because you were provided with tools that you continue to use to invite people yes. to this unique experience which we call Mm -hmm. theater. Yeah. 
I want to ask you about growing up, because I know you were in college in the late 60s, around the time of Vietnam and the Black Panthers and the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. For those of us who are living now in what seems like these terrible divided times, can you give us perspective on having lived through the late 60s and what you see happening now? Similarly, because of the level of atrocity that these events were happening. We also had apocalyptic thoughts, particularly when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. We thought this must be the end time. This must be an indicator that humanity has gone too far and names are now going to be taken and we're going to be judged. It's one of the reasons why I introduce myself to you as an unreconstructed hippie, because facing those atrocities, we who were the counterculture then truly believe that all we needed was love and that war could be over if we wanted it to be. We didn't have to fight wars to end wars. We simply had to choose not to fight them. We sang that song, This is the Dawning of the Age of Aquarius. Now, we were off by many years. I now realize that we are on the threshold of the dawning of the age of Aquarius. But now the indicators are there. The paragon is changing from the violent force of the patriarchy to the nourishing force of that which is matriarchal. That's why Mother Nature is screaming to us, you have breached the covenant that you made with me to be a good husband to me. And I'm not talking about gender. I'm talking about husbandry. That's called caretaking. You weren't supposed to abuse me. You weren't supposed to assault me. You weren't supposed to rape me. You were supposed to collaborate with me. So now where are we? There's this old world that's decaying, that's dying. And Mother Nature is saying, this is natural. Things grow, things decay. Let that old world die. And if necessary, assist it in dying because there is a new world, bristling with energy, or as the Italians say, combrio, yearning to be born. And we need to practice our midwifery with the new world, with the new earth. Stop being nostalgic for the past and become nostalgic for the future. Yeah, I love that you mentioned Aquarius, so because you were in the original company of hair. And given the politics of the time, it must have been wild. Wild. (laughs) Just wild. It's wild now. So just. (laughs) Yeah. All right. It's wild now, but it's, it's, it's wild now with division. It's wild now with the festering cancer that all of the virulent isms have caused under 2000 years of patriarchy. Then in the mid to the late 60s, it was wild with this nascent, ah. love is the correct word, 
but we have confused the term love with lust. We've confused the term love with desire, when indeed it's better to understand love with the Greek word agape, which means I will put my well-being in a subordinate position to your well-being, and you will do the same. Your well-being in a subordinate position to my well-being. And that's how you achieve the golden mean. That's how you achieve balance. Yeah. Not by putting yourself first and just accumulating stuff, mm -hmm. but by saying, oh no, you first. I feel like we need a little bit of that 60s energy. Yes, yeah, <laughs> right yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what's, you haven't asked about this, so I'm going to offer it. That's what's inspiring me in the concert that I'm bringing to 54 below. Those pages from my pandemic diary, not all of them, but many of the notes that I made to myself, when we find ourselves in a position where our vision is beginning to clear, remember this lesson that you learned, Andre, and share it. Because another horrific experience you and I can remember, although I have many years on you, is September 11, 2001. 9-11, right? Something that continues to inspire us from then in terms of our security is that phrase, if you see something, say something. I turn that, again, I'm substituting lessons in life. I like to say, if you know something, share something. And what I know about having gone through 18 months of this pandemic, I'm going to share at 54 Below. I know that it, yes, it did not sound like your typical cabaret. So <laughs> we definitely are looking forward to that. You have some backup singers. I have some vocalists with me, yes. And you do work with them quite often, yeah. correct? Yeah. As well as your musical director. So those collaborations are there. I want to ask you one more question about, of course, I have to ask about Hades Town because the fans want to know. You're returning to the role on September 2nd. And of course, everybody knows you won the Tony along with almost every other award for the role of Hermes. How did you become involved with the project? And did you know in its early stages of being involved with it that it was going to be so successful or so special? I'm going to share something with you that I don't think many people know, but I'm not telling any secrets out of school, anything like that. Most people who are familiar with the stage versions of Hades Town, because you know it was indeed an album before yes. that it had a stage iteration. Most people who are familiar with the stage iteration know it from the off-Broadway production premiere at New York Theatre Workshop in 2016, maybe? 2017. So, yeah. However, the first attempt to theatricalize Hades Town was in 2012. Oh. Yeah. Oh, the fall of 2012 in the rehearsal studios of Second Stage over on 43rd Street. And it had a totally different crop of talent. I'm a holdover from that. Oh, wow. I 
breathed life into the role of Hermes in the fall of 2012. And I invested, recall the story that I told you that I shared when I had this adult conversation with my parents and how I knew on the day I was born how I would meet my destiny. It wasn't the mystery of this phoenix, as it were. So when I had this opportunity to share in the creation of this character theatrically for the first time, I invested some of my DNA, some of the stuff I've been holding close to my vest so that it wouldn't become sullied. And I thought, oh, my dear, I have been wanting someone to call on my erudition for all these many years. From my first professional experience, which was hair in 1969, up to when I came to New York in 1973, up to when I did that workshop of Hadestown in 2012, I was always the magical Negro. I have no regrets about that, but I'm saying that was my skin in the game. I had always wanted someone to say, and I'm saying this deliberately, let's love Andre for his mind. Yeah, the intellect. Yeah, for my intellect. Education has always been my beacon on my path to the little success that I have achieved. My inspiration is Andre be the most authentic Andre de Shields that you can be. And here was my opportunity. So when I say I invested my DNA into Hermes, I made a covenant with him. And I said, when this project becomes a commercial success, and I'm not pulling your leg here. I said this to the character. When this project becomes a commercial success, come back to me. So the DNA that I planted in Hermes was an artistic boomerang. Yes. <laughs> so seven years later, when Hades Town was getting attention at New York Theatre Workshop, I was somewhere else working. But here in my daydreams, I didn't have to even have to wait until I was sleeping in bed. In my daydreams, I was talking to Hermes. <laughs> Remember? You promise you're going to come back to me, right? So in 2018, when Mankind, this goes back to Robert O'Hara now, when Mankind was playing at Playwrights Horizons, I got a call from Aeneas Mitchell, and she wanted to know if I wanted to replace Hermes in the off-Broadway production. And for reasons which I think you can imagine, my response was no thank you. Then, when the invitation came to Town to go to the National in England, Aeneas persuaded Rachel Chafkin to come see me in Mankind. She did, and we had a conversation after the performance, and it was very lovely. And that was that. And then when the lab, which was going to take the show to London, happened, I got the call. 
we would like you to take over the role, which means I was at the beginning again, not replacing, trying to be somebody else or reinterpret. I love how all of that is connected. Yeah, of course it's connected. It's incredible. Of course it's connected. It's such a great story from a wizard to a god. Right, exactly. And now to 54 Below. Right, right, right. right. (laughs) Andre, it has been an honor and a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for giving so much time. I know you're busy getting ready for the show, but this has been an incredible conversation and I'm sure everybody is going to be delighted to be listening. And so thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's been a wonderful, wonderful Sunday afternoon delight. Andre DeShields will play Fine Science 54 Below August 3 to 7 at 7 p.m. For tickets, visit 54below.com. You've been listening to the Fine Science 54 Below podcast, part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.